Hello and welcome to the TICE podcast. This podcast is the audio-only version of our twice-weekly cybersecurity talk show, TICE Talk. The link to the news item, the continuity lessons of the Facebook outage, can be found in the show notes. Our panel discussion on this episode is titled Quantifying Cyber Risk at Board Level and the panellists' details can also be found in the show notes. To join us live and to catch up with previous TICE Talk episodes, please visit www.tice.co.uk forward slash talk. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello, good afternoon. It's Thursday clock, Thursday, four o'clock in the afternoon. It must be time for another TICE talk. As you know, we're live with you every Tuesday and Thursday at four o'clock in the afternoon. Tuesdays, my co-host Jenny takes the stage and with me, Jeff White, it's Thursdays. Welcome to our returning uh, viewers. Good to have you back. I know we've got some regular fans out there and also hello, hello to our new people. Do help spread the word at TICE talk. We get around all of the key topics and I'll be addressing some of them at the end of this session, letting you know what's coming up in our future sessions. Um, Good to see you all. Thank you for turning up. Uh, We do, of course, have a famous TICE Talk mug to give away on our session today. Uh, You'll notice also that the the gradual erosion of my TICE Talk mug continues. Um, Eventually, we will just be down to ice towel. Um, Interesting, it's it's taking taking most effect at this end. I don't know why this end is not so bad. Anyway, gradually, this will just turn from being the TICE Talk mug, as we affectionately refer to it in my household, to just being the mug. which is useful because it's a sobriquet usually applied to me by my partner. But um, yes, thanks, Benjamin. Get that man a new mug. Uh, you would have thought, wouldn't you, that a new mug would be winging its way to you, uh, to me. Um, but listen, I am a little bit uh, discombobulated at the moment. I did my first uh, foreign travel trip this week um, to, to, do a, to do a conference uh, overseas. Um, and it, I was hopeless. I couldn't find my passport. I didn't know when my passport expired. You're supposed to have all of these things with you. I didn't have the things with me. I was the guy, I was the person who stands in front of you in the queue at the, at the airport, basically texting and on the internet, trying to fill out the forms that you should fill out and print out at home. Um, so yes, uh, uh, apologies to all of you who are queuing behind me, but I got back safely. And I now have the black lung of death. I don't have COVID but I do have the black lung of death because everybody has a cold now. So I'm going to give the free mug away to whoever can guess where I went to. Uh, if you can guess the country that I went to to take part in the conference, then you get a free Tice Talk mug. Uh, failing that, whoever comes up with the best or most outlandish suggestion uh, wins. I don't think I did an update on social media, so you can't use my Twitter account to, to, <laughs> to open source intelligently on this one. Um, but anyway, you will win a free mug if you have a guess or make a funny suggestion. Uh, so yeah, there we go. Um, but look, let's get to the task in hand. We've got another great topic to discuss on our TICE talk session. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about quantifying cyber risk at board level. This comes up again and again and again. How do you win those arguments? How do you make those arguments to the board? Uh, how do you present things? How do you communicate things? It's a really interesting issue. And one, whichever level that you're at in the industry is going to affect you, because I think, as far as I'm aware, the boards have the money. They decide where it goes. So we're going to be chatting about that with our great panel, another great panel of guests on the TICE Talk show today. We've got Simon Mayer, who's head of information security and data privacy at Bruin Dolphin, and Brooks Wallace, VP of sales EMEA at Deep Instinct, which I keep in my head thinking is Deep Impact, but that's the film. It's not. It's Deep Instinct. I'm going to be talking to our first guest first, though, uh, who is Dr. Paul Lewis, who is Senior Director of Cloud Security at Elsevier who's going to be joining us now from wherever, indeed, in the world he is joining us from. Hi, Paul. How are you? Ah, good afternoon, Jeff. I'm very well. Thank you very much. 
Good, good. It's an impressive bookshelf you've got behind you. I like that. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. It's, it is indeed a real um, bookshelf rather than a photograph as well. <laughs> I was going to ask. I was going to ask you to sort of turn around and just pull a few of them out, just to sort of you know. <laughs> Absolutely. Just trying, just trying to see conspicuous absence of my own book in there. But no, that's fine. That's fine. I, I won't. I won't give you a hard time about it. It's, all right. <laughs> it's just, to, just to the right. Just to the right. You just so, yeah. There's a whole string of them just to the right. Yeah. Um, Listen, Elsevier, so so um, I was interested by this because obviously we've had pharmaceutical companies on the, mm -hmm. the, the program um, talking about, and obviously during COVID and coronavirus been extremely busy. I know Elsevier isn't quite in that type of industry, but obviously medical and science publishing is what you guys do. Is it, have you, has, that, has COVID and coronavirus affected you, you know, as an industry just beyond just the normal business effects? Has, has it got well, busier for you guys? Yeah, absolutely. I, th I think, uh, as with everybody within, within both uh, the publishing and also academic uh, industries, there's been a lot of disruption over the past 18 months and i think we we moved a lot of our if not all of our um, sort of employees and, and suppliers uh, to to work from home and that obviously caused some interesting uh, sort of like dilemmas and problems uh, moving mm. everybody so we were affected in that way but we also try to support and look to support a lot of the kind of research which happens within within COVID mm. as well and we have a, a dedicated COVID 19 portal to help uh, um, sort of like academics and librarians and, and general um, educationists around the world to actually sort of access uh, sort of like up-to-date uh, literature. Yeah, and that's interesting. So you see, you saw an uptick. Presumably, there's an uptick in numbers of people just wanting to search articles and research. You, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. We, we saw a, a, a fairly significant um, surge in our online um, search uh, services. So, for example, Science Direct being one of them. And mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the keywords COVID nineteen or coronavirus uh, leapt quite, quite significantly, as you would expect, where people are looking uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, looking for kind of uh, accurate and, and trustworthy information about what it actually meant. Yeah, interesting. And yet, I mean, I'm taking for granted that people know what Elsevier does. I mean, what, just give us a sort of thumbnail sketch of the uh, of the business and and how big it is. Oh. Oh yeah, so uh, we're part of uh, a group called Relex, which is uh, Read Exhibitions, uh, Elsevier, uh, LexisNexis, and, and Read Business Information Services. And what what that is is basically a, a FTSE 100 organisation who who specialise in risk, risk analytics, and also science, technology, engineering, and mathematics uh, publishing, as well as other disciplines. And what we do is is we try to sort of give uh, sort of the, the credibility of of, of uh, peer review and and lots of other kind of uh, journals for example lancet is, is one of the journals which we we look after and we provide that um, information to to everybody who, who needs to sort of, sort of see those things yeah, interesting interesting i wonder as well i mean i covered a little while ago there was an iranian group going around trying to hack universities mm. um and it was interesting because the the, the sense i got from from people was because uh, it, it's very peculiar trying to hack sort of different research and it wasn't mm it was just general very very general kind of hacking into as many universities as they could and trying to get hold of logins and the sense i got from some people was look iran is cut off from research uh, information you know mm. they can't necessarily get access to the great libraries that we we have and so on partly thanks to sanctions and so on but um so the idea was well they're trying to hack in to just steal scientific papers any scientific papers are getting hold of not particularly controversial or top secret mm. but just any information and it, it, when I was thinking about Alcevia, I was thinking, you know, presumably there's, there's a similar thing where, you know, some of the attacks you're facing are just people trying to hoover up as much information as they can and not pay, not pay the fee for it, frankly. Well, it's, it's an interesting um, observation, actually, because a lot of the, the universities we speak to, we, we try to help um, universities in some cases sort of beef up their security if that's appropriate. And, you know, security, um, universities are very, very open by their very nature because of the, the kind of educational uh, way that they do things. And, and when we, we do sort of look at those kind of issues and, and problems, we do work with our with our colleagues in 
in the education or with any kind of learner society. So we do try and, and help them as much as we actually can do. Um, but with respect to that particular kind of question, I think it's it's fascinating to see how things have evolved over time as well, to say, well, actually, you know, countries, nation states are, as you, as you pointed out a moment ago, may not necessarily get access to those, um, you know, cutting and up-to-date up uh, versions of um, research and development. So uh, what avenue do they go down? Do they develop themselves or they, hmm. they potentially embark on a, on a, on a hacking spree, as you mentioned? Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you know, it's interesting, UK, as, as we know from the headlines, the last even the last few days, the UK's pharmaceutical sector is really good. It's one of the mm -hmm. things that Britain does well and makes us money. And you can imagine other people might be uh, might be quite interested in some of that. Um, a couple of guesses, by the way, for where I went, uh, where I went. This is for a work gig, by the way. Some of the c comments coming in are not appropriate. Ibiza, clubbing till 6am every morning. No, I was not in Ibiza. Uh, hi, Sharon says hello. Anastasios, Liverpool Man City match under the rain. No, I didn't fly to <laughs> Liverpool to watch <coughs> that. Uh, Sharon says, was sunning myself in southern Turkey. No, I wasn't. I was at work. I was at work somewhere. I will narrow it down. It was Europe. Mm. So that's a little bit of a clue for you. If you can guess the venue, uh, then you get the coveted uh, Tice Talk mug. Um, listen, I'm going to come on to the talking to the board thing in a second, but we're going to talk first about uh, about the, the basically the news story of the week in tech. Uh, it's endlessly fascinating, which is the Facebook Instagram and WhatsApp outages uh, mm. from earlier in the week. And obviously not directly related, but I imagine there's some board level conversations uh, going on. Uh, Paul, what did, what did you make of this? Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a fascinating uh, sort of case study, I think, which people will write about in, in, in years to come around how a potentially seemingly uh, benign config change managed to unplug one of the, the, the colossuses of, uh, of the internet. And I think if you read the, the blogs and you read the various kind of press which has been around it, it's quite interesting to see firstly how it started and, it, and from what I've gleaned from the, the Facebook uh, blog was around a, a very sort of benign config change which then cascaded, which is obviously one of the really interesting things about this, into mm. effectively unplugging themselves from the internet using a combination of DNS and, and BGP automation. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? It's, uh, I, I was getting so many messages from people saying, uh, you know, what, what's going on here? Is this, is this the next mm. episode of your podcast about North Korean hackers? And, <laughs> Indeed, and I, yeah. I, did, I did say to people, I said, look, this actually, this doesn't, you know, this looks like one of the classic configuration type things. I was thinking of, um, not Dime, but I was thinking of Fastly, that's what I was thinking of. Yeah. Um, you know, those, those massive outages when just everything goes down simultaneously and no one can get access to anything. Mm. Um, but what, it's not, so as far as we're aware, not a cyber attack. But what I found really interesting was if you think about it from the position of what you do during a cyber attack, there were some interesting lessons. So I was reading an article in The Express of all places, Data Express, mm -hmm. which was talking about the tools that Facebook's engineers use and employees use to diagnose and sort out the problems are, of course, often on Facebook servers and on Facebook's domains. So if your servers and domains are down, your ability to fix it, yeah. you're sort of trapped in the building. Did you see what I mean, Paul? Did that come across to you? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, th I think because everything is so interconnected and interdependent. So if your network, which is ultimately the stuff which binds it all together, goes down, then mm. do you have a backup service? Do you have the resilience to actually um, <coughs> believe that actually they can bring things back and so on and so forth? And I think sometimes as, as IT professionals and security professionals, we kind of forget the run mundane run of the mill type things mm. like BGP and DNS or network mm. traffic. It's just there in the fabric of what we do. And when that fabric disappears, then it's quite an interesting conundrum, you know. Um, you know, anecdotally, I believe that people were trying to get into data centers and they couldn't. Mm -hmm. So, because of as you mentioned, you know, locks have gone down and all of the security which is in place prevented people to actually get things back. So, 
there's always going to be a trade-off between you know the security of the system be it physical yeah. or cyber versus yeah. the, the usability yeah it's interesting yeah there's i saw i saw joe tidy at the bbc um talking about uh did, did they have to use angle grinders to get into the data centers and mm. i think facebook responded and said no no we didn't but it, <laughs> it didn't say what they did have to use anyway i think they managed to get in in the end but that's yeah. really interesting i mean there's the, the the physical security side i was really surprised at because i would have thought somebody and i'm not laying this on facebook i think a lot of institutions would have this but i would have thought somebody would say well hang on if we if our entry door entry passes are linked into the same infrastructure via the same internet connections as the rest of the organization it, it just seems like an obvious one you, you you've put all of those eggs into one basket there's no segmentation is it just that this BGP problem is so big that it was almost not worth thinking about in terms of the mm. sort of disaster recovery mm. plans? So well, if that goes down, it's just game over. But can, is that the case? Or can you say, look, let's try and test what happens if that really critical piece of infrastructure goes down? I guess you could, you could test anything, right, at the end of the day. But I think it probably, and you know, I'm speculating here now because I've got no evidence, but you know, I, I've been into in conversations where people say, what happens if Google, AWS, Alibaba, yeah. Cloud, whatever, go down. Hmm. What, what's the probability of that? Well, the probability is vanishingly small, but it's hmm. incredibly high impact. And that's <laughs> yeah. when you start getting into those kind of black swan type events, whereby yeah. it's so catastrophic that it doesn't even bear thinking about because we, yeah. the world is ended and we're going to be running around now with a hair on fire type of thing. So yeah. I suspect that's potentially the kind of the risk and impact assessment what may have happened. But again, yeah. I'm speculating there. Truly. There's a thing called, the, I don't know if they come across this, a thing called the Carrington event which is the idea, it's, it's some collision of various solar phenomena and astronomical phenomena mm. that if it happens would knock out everything electrical on the planet. It would, they'd all just be knocked out simultaneously. And obviously it's a terrifying prospect, but the chances of it happening are so, well, unpredictable. We have no idea how likely this thing is. Yeah. And so it's like, well, do you plan for that? Probably not, <laughs> because, because everybody on the planet would understand that it's something you couldn't plan for, I suppose. Mm. Mm. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? You know, one, one could level that kind of argument toward the, the, the recent pandemic, because that was a one in a hundred yeah, event. Yeah, exactly. yeah. And, you know, that's cost over a trillion dollars. Mm. Um, so, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it, how much do you prepare and how much do you sort of like bank for, I think, is, is the question there, isn't it? This segues neatly, uh, almost as though I planned it, into our discussion about board discussions, because I wonder, um, you'll obviously have had these discussions yourself, and I wonder the extent to which those kind of black swan events get brought up by the board. Do they, does anyone ever throw you that kind of curveball and say, well, what if such and such happens? Or conversely, do you sometimes throw them the curveball? Is it, do these, these conversations happen to yeah, absolutely. You know, I've been in conversations in my in my previous careers whereby I've briefed the board and kind of said, "Hey, did you anticipate these kind of questions?" For example, you know, as I mentioned a moment ago, the cloud in inverted commas disappearing, right. and ultimately that would you know wipe out a number of service lines in, in one of my previous roles. Hmm. So you know, those kind of questions do ask do get asked, but typically when you're talking to the board, the one question which is spoken about is, "Am I secure?" question mark Hmm. And the answer, and the report, and the answer to that is it depends, <laughs> and you know, and that is the kind of level of of um, sort of sophistication which some boards may may kind of interrogate you. Um, hmm. Others are much more uh, sophisticated, some less. So I think it's, hmm. a, it's a fascinating topic which we come on to in a moment. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. And actually, yeah, at that moment, I w I'm going to bring in our panelists in a second, but I just want to gauge for our audience first of all. I'm going to ask our our Tice Elf who is beaving away in the background. Thank you, Tice Elf. Um, 
Uh, oh, there's already a, a, a question about to what extent the pandemic was a black swan event. Yeah, it's a good point. It's a good point. You can always argue, well, we could have predicted it and so on. But thanks for that, Mustafa. We'll try and get into that later on. I do think it's an interesting point. And the tie self was also linked to the Carrington event. If you haven't heard of it, have a, have a look on the, the Wikipedia entry. It's an interesting one. But before we get into this discussion, I want to ask our audience if the tie self can do a poll, because I want to um, just gauge the extent to which um, our audience have conversations with the board. So Ty Self, I guess the poll we want to ask people would be something like, do you have board level conversations about cybersecurity or tech security? Are you, are, you, are you at the board level in your conversation? Something like that. And you'll see up in the thing, there's a little poll thing there and you can cast your vote. Um, so yes, please do vote because it'd be interesting. I'm, I'm interested to sort of work out how many people are actually in the room with that and how many people are outside the room, but listening intently to what comes out of it. Um, and also, I think as panelists, we have to submit our answers. So there we go. Um, so look, I'm going to bring in our other guests now and just chat about this. As I say, we've got uh, Simon Mayer, who's Head of Information Security and Data Privacy at Bruin Dolphin, and Brooks Wallace, who's VP Sales EMEA at Deep Instinct. Uh, hello to you both. Um, Simon, just for, again, for folks who don't know Bruin Dolphin, um, give us a thumbnail sketch of, uh, of uh, what it does. Sure, Brian Dolphin are a wealth manager. We're UK based, predominantly. We've got a small a, a small office in Ireland as well, Southern Ireland. Uh, we've got about eighty thousand clients and about fifty six at last count, about fifty six billion funds under management, and that's all predominantly private wealth. Uh, there's a few charities, but predominantly it's private wealth. Interesting stuff. So yeah, lots of lots of interesting data that you're sitting on and trying to keep secure. I'd imagine um, absolutely. Brooks, uh, again, with Deep Instinct, uh, which I keep, for some reason, my brain just keeps going to Deep Impact. Maybe it's because I'm a film film fan. But yeah, Deep Instinct, tell us about the company, what it does. Yeah, we are not the 1998 film with Morgan Freeman where the asteroid is swirling <laughs> towards Earth Deep and impact. causing an extinction event, although you referenced that a minute ago, planning for the, for the uh, unexpected, of course. Uh, deep Instinct is all about deep learning. We use deep learning, a subset of artificial intelligence, one step below machine learning, to prevent attacks, malware attacks, ransomware attacks. We use it in a way that actually predicts and prevents attacks. Pre-execution, pretty neat. That means they don't ever get written to your disk or onto your hard drive or memory. Therefore, you don't ever have an event. Um, and that's what we do. Good stuff. Well, nice and succinct. Thanks, Brooks and Simon, both. Just on our poll, by the way, we've got uh, three quarters say yes, they do have board level conversations about cyber and tech security. So that's good. So we are actually speaking to people who are in the room. But if you're not in the room, don't worry, because you're probably interested in what's uh, what's coming out of it. Um, so d d Simon, in terms of uh, in, in terms of you folks, um, uh, in terms of these board level conversations, let's go back to what I was talking to Paul about. That how wide ranging is it? first of all you know well so i mean you get those kind of massively broad questions about you, know, you do i mean one of the one, one of the key things is we're financially regulated so one of the big things that's uh, that's come out recently is operational resilience and this is where the regulator is concerned so there there's been a number of incidents with large financial uh, providers uh, having major impacts and have therefore then their customers having huge impacts, not being able to pay mortgages, not being able to, you know, take money out of an ATM, that kind of thing. And the regulators identified that the, you know, some of the change that's being pushed through particularly, but possibly then a ransomware attack or whatever it might be, could bring, you know, could cause harm to a client as the, that that's the word that they, that's the terminology they use. So, 
you know, the board is as being expected, not just by us, but by the regulator to understand what the impact tolerances are for our services, mm. what, what making sure that understanding whether in the event of a crisis, how quickly can we be, get those services back up and running? And therefore, what would the impact be to a client? And Simon, just staying with you on that, how, how much do you have to understand as the sort of techie in the room, as it were, about the the regulations and the restrictions and the laws. Right, so you can't just leave it to them and say, look. No, no, no. So I'm heavily involved in our operation. I mean, there's a huge percentage of that operational resilience is around cyber resilience. Hmm. Some of it is the old-fashioned financial resilience. So firms like us have to hold large amounts of money Hmm. so that we can, in the event of something happening, we're able to recover, you know, ensure that clients are not out out of pocket as it were, which will reassure somebody, some of the people on the call probably. Um, but yeah, so we're heavily involved in it. But I think one of the things that the operational resilience is really pushing is it's pushing that conversation out into the business and making sure the business don't just turn around to technology and say, deal with it. You know, mm-hmm. they have a responsibility and it's making sure all those different, including the board, all those different areas have, have an understanding of what their responsibility is. Interesting stuff. Um, and Brooks, can I come to you on this? Uh, because the one of the things about artificial intelligence and type solutions and, and, and deep learning comes into it and machine learning and so on is this issue of trust and explicability. And I, I wonder for boards particularly how winnable that conversation is with technology like yours. To, you know, yes, we've got this protection in place. Are there concerns that people express and say, well, look, how, you know, how explainable is it? You know, if, if the board asks us how this thing works, can we actually talk to them and talk them through it? Yeah, I think so. You know, you know, if you're looking at what's happening right now, 69% of all the malware attacks that have taken place recently, according to HelpNet Security, this is a report they issued, said 69% of those malware attacks are actually ransomware attacks. This is rife. I, the, the board level are worried about this. They're talking about securing cyber, or sorry, um, you know, Bitcoin. Um, they're, they're getting cryptocurrency. They're uh, preparing for the worst, right? They're looking at the inevitable, what's going to happen. Um, and I, I think that, you know, something like deep learning and deep instinct are able to, with prevention, uh, give them some peace of mind. Today's technologies that are out there, such as endpoint detection and response, are very necessary, very good, have been around for a long time, but they're not solving the problem. They're not preventing these attacks. Right. And I think that if you can get there with deep learning and really have true prevention in place, then, um, you know, what's what's a board to, to not say yes to, right? It's, um, that's what we're seeing anyway. And, and, and for, for the just Brooke, staying with you on that for the for the newer solutions like yours and sort of newer wave of, of solutions, um, are there sort of certain things that you think that um, techies can do to explain that to the board? To say, look, we're taking on board this new this new solution. You know, it's it's not like the traditional stuff we've tried, but here's why we should go for it because of X, Y, and Z. Are the kind of winning arguments that, that you've come across that uh, that, that convince? Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you. Um, you know, you're, you're talking about a. Uh, uh, an overworked, fatigued workforce, right? The security analysts that are there today are drowning in false positives. They're getting lots of alerts that, you know, are, are sometimes, you know, meaningless. And uh, and they're spending all their time uh, where they could be actually being more useful to the organization um, had they be, if they had more time uh, to spend on other things other than reviewing alerts that might not actually be a real concern for them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so by preventing the attacks taking place to begin with, those alerts go down. 
Um, so that's a very positive thing to share with your board, right? We're getting more efficiency out of our, our team by using this new technology. It's preventing what others are falling, you know, falling uh, to in terms of bad press, your name and lights, you know, on the front page of the newspaper that you've been hacked. And then do you pay the ransom? What's the moral obligation around that? The ethical discussion that takes place with that even with your customers, if you're in a professional services organization, for example, and those are the kind of conversations that boards typically don't want to have and try to avoid. And if you can mm -hmm. get there with deep learning, then they're happy to have that as a technology yeah. in the organization. Yeah, it's interesting that the issue of do, do we pay the ransom or not is always feels like a question that you, you never want to have to answer. <laughs> Hypothetically, yes, but in reality, hopefully not. Um, it's interesting. So Scott's, uh, Scott's asked a question on this. Um, given the ransomware epidemic, and Scott says his CEO, his CEO has asked, have risk appetites and tolerances changed? Paul, how, how do you feel about that? Do you feel that the, the ransomware thing has changed? Risk appetite, risk tolerance? It's a good question. Um, I'd definitely say that the, the awareness of risk has changed. I've had conversations whereby people who are not technical, who have nothing to do with computing, they just use it as a tool to do their day job, have kind of said, what's this ransomware thing? And how do we, how do, are, we are we secure? Are, are, we, are we protected against it? And the, and the answer is, you know, it depends because new ransomware comes out all the time, things change and so on and so forth. And technologies, uh, as, as Brooks mentioned, you know, new technologies like machine learning, deep learning, all these kind of things actually do sort of like protect you from those kind of things. But no system is never going to be 100% secure hmm. from a risk tolerance perspective i don't know it's a simple answer i think the tolerance of risk is a very very subjective thing anyway hmm. and people you know in the same way that people probably tolerated the risk of having no uh, backbone from a facebook perspective you know could you put in as many controls as you possibly can from a ransomware perspective well absolutely people have endpoint detection and segregation and things like that so hmm. you know the tolerance probably has gone down, but you know it's going to be subjective and in a case by case basis from, from each organization and sector. Yeah, interesting. As, Simon, can I come to you on this? Um, just to actually pick up on this Facebook story. Is, yeah. is that the kind of thing that you might get asked about? I know it's not tech security related, but is that the kind of thing that might come up? Oh, definitely. We'll definitely like we, we, they, they're really helpful. I mean, even today, I, uh, you, you won't be aware, but there has been an outage of one of the major suppliers. At, uh, okay, One of the major players has had a minor outage. I was on a crisis call just before, and I've just seen they fixed it now. And we, you know, so all the time we're having these impacts because we're starting, I mean, you talked about the, um, you, you know, cloud. We, the concentration risk is the next concern really, is will be the next concern because yeah. the only major players really are the Amazons, the Googles and, so, and, and you know, and, and Microsoft. So suddenly you've got the whole of the, the UK financial sector pushing, you know, using SaaS services, which are only, whilst they're different companies, mm -hmm. They're all based only based in three three environments, yeah. give or take a little bit, and that then of course is quite a significant risk for the whole mm. service. I mean, you know, yes, little old Bruin Dolphin in comparison to some of the major banks, in, international banks, is not so big, but it, it is a concern. So we they're really helpful these stories to use as particularly the reputational piece. You know, mm. our, our clients trust us with their wealth. Right. If we do, if we are not, if we are then losing their data or we're, you know, we're not available for them to, to, to trade or whatever it might be, that's mm. a reputational risk for us. And, you know, it, just commercially, it's bad. Right. Yeah. But it, it, and it, I think it takes a long time to get out of that. So so boards do have that understanding, you know, and we have a very low tolerance of risk. I mean, just back to your question earlier, that question earlier. 
Uh, and so, yeah, I can yeah for, for understandable reasons. Simon, just staying with you for, for that in a second, I'll come to the others uh, on this as well. Um, the, the, the the flip side then of that of that question that I asked, you know, to what extent are boards, in terms of tech security, always looking in the review mirror at the last thing that happened and thinking we don't want that? You know, to what extent are you able to have a strategic conversation and say, look, actually, as, as you say, I mean, that's a really interesting point. You know, we've got three buckets to put our data in, and that's not many buckets. You know. This might be, not be a problem now, but two, three years hence, how far out can you can you have those conversations? Oh, I think those are those are pretty difficult conversations. I mean, one of the challenges I think for boards is, we're, we're, and you know, still is is the expertise, the cybersecurity expertise that's that's at board level. Whilst it's growing all the time, I've no doubt it is not always there. So one of the elements I think we have a responsibility for is almost training the board to look out, to be looking for these things. Mm, and that mm. can be, you know, you find yourself saying to the board, right, here's my report. These are the things you should be looking for in the report. You know, right. so you're almost asking them to mark your own homework. They right. are, I mean, it doesn't, you know, these are highly intelligent people. Let's just be frank. They don't, it doesn't take them long to grasp it. But I think, you know, there are lots of businesses with boards everywhere and they're all looking for that kind of expertise now because this can happen to anybody, right? Very quickly, stay with you, Simon, on this one. How long have you got with the board? How long do you get in those meetings, roughly? We get, uh, we'll get about 30 minutes if we're lucky. Okay. I mean, they have huge, you know, this is another thing. They have huge risk agendas. There's yeah. all sorts of risks. And we, you know, you need to be, rel you need to understand that you're not necessarily the most important person in the room at, at any time. It's difficult <laughs> yeah, that sometimes with what's going on. Paul, how, how does that compare to Elsevier? How, 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 how much did you get roughly? I, I don't report to the board, but my, um, my, my boss, the CISO, does actually sort of report into the CIO and stuff. But when I was um, the CTO of a startup um, many moons ago, uh, it was roughly the same from a 30, 30 minute perspective. Uh, yeah. But one of the key things was actually really interesting and just going on your point, Simon, then a moment ago about you're not the most important person in the room. It was fascinating to actually sit in the board for the duration of the actual entire board and you get, get a feeling for the business problems which they're wrestling with, for example, cash flow. For example, looking at mm. other you know, HR risks, you know, hiring people, you know, all those yeah. kind of things, and and it actually is in some respects quite humbling as well because you mentioned um, you know the fact that you only get thirty minutes, but other people might even get less, yeah. and I think that's a really important thing, an important message when you're dealing with the board and dealing with very very busy people who have to make strategic decisions for the sometimes life of the company to actually kind of say, hey, this is exactly what we need to do. I'd say I, I, I was surprised 30 minutes sounded quite quite high to me. I was expecting less, but there you go. Um, Brooks, can I come to you on that then? What, so as a, as a supplier, what what's, are you briefing people who then go in to talk to boards, you in front of boards yourself? What's your what's your sort of... Uh... Yeah, we're not yeah, we're not in front of the boards, unfortunately. Uh, that would be great if we were, but uh, from a sales perspective, um, they're taking what we're working with, I guess, and showing the effectiveness of deep learning and how it's being used and the, the impact of that. Uh, in their business in terms of removing those those threats from the business, the efficacy that is there. So a couple of things, I guess, that I have seen in the last couple of weeks uh, in conversations is supply chain risk. That's a big thing right now for, for boards. And how do you reduce third-party security, cybersecurity risk in terms of connectivity uh, with your partners and with suppliers that may be breached? For example, if they're using um, machine learning and there's an adversarial attack that takes place where some of the the element of their, of their own security technology, their product has been poisoned, you know, this adversarial type attack, malware attack can affect the supply chain. And so that seems to be a hot topic on the, on the boards right now. Um, but 
Now, I guess something like a, a, a separate thing to this would be looking at it from an insurance perspective um, and having technology that is proven to work and then backed up with a an insurance product like Deep Instinct's deep learning technology is with Munich Re, guaranteeing that the attack will never happen. And so we pay a $3 million ransomware warranty through Munich Re. That's pretty impressive stuff. So boards want to see what am I getting for my investment, not just the security, but is somebody they're going to put their money where their mouth is and actually stand up for this stuff. We actually have a, a million dollar efficacy rate that says we will do, you will have less than 0.1% false positives over two consecutive quarters, also backed up by Munich Re. So I think the insurance companies are coming out as an industry and people are getting behind good technology that actually will sit in a board conversation where people can say, I'm getting money out of this, I'm getting value out of this that actually I'm not getting from other suppliers. Yeah, to have responses to those harder questions that the board are going to are going to ask. Um, by the way, Karen Whitaker's uh, responded to Simon's point. Uh, has MySpace gone down? No, Karen, I think we'd all know if MySpace had gone down. Um, <laughs> my uh, my music collection would be uh, would be considerably uh, affected by that. Mohammed said, I bet Facebook wishes at least some of their services were third party provided, like the door keys to their data centers. Very good point. Uh, having having a physical key, I, I think it's the way to go. Um, Simon, I want to come back to you on something that you mentioned about almost having to sort of brief the board on the kind of questions that they should be asking you mm. in response to this. Um, it's interesting, this comes down to sort of the communication piece and how you put together um, you know, your argument. Uh, are you sort of presenting, to what extent are you just sort of presenting data and numbers and saying, look, this is what we've seen, this is the trends, this is how many attacks we've repelled, etc. Uh, to, to what extent you're trying to sort of craft that into a story? How, what's your sort of, do you have well, a communication it, strategy? Or, yeah, so I mean, to, back to Paul's point about being able to listen to what other, how other areas of reporting risk into the risk committee, for example, mm -hmm. the board risk committee, that's, you, you very quickly learn mm -hmm. to start to ensure that you're describing risk in the same way as other people other people are, so that cyber risk is, put, is, is described in a similar way to operational risk. Mm -hmm. And I think, the, the key thing about the, the board is they want to know what the problems are. You know, you can I could go in there and give them all sorts of MI about all and lots of lovely, pretty graphs. But actually, in that very succinct amount of time, really what they want to hear from me is where do you see a problem? What mm -hmm. what what do we need to do about it? And how can I, is there something I can help with you to do that? And I think if you go with that mentality, as in don't go in there and go just, you know, sh show them all these lovely, pretty pictures and, and, and you know, say, hey, look at me, aren't I brilliant? Go in there and say, look, these are the problems we're facing. We're, and, and it may be because you're having challenges within your business of areas of the business don't support the cyber message or whatever. So you're having to be you have to craft those carefully so they're not sort of you don't end up with an inter into company war but mm. you're sort of you know as it were but you're trying to make sure that the most important thing and so that there isn't a point in time when something goes bang and the board member turns around to you and says simon why did we not know about this mm. why mm. you know this was clearly a problem so right. i think it's it, that those are the things looking at what the the main risks are to you as a firm and what should, what can we do about those yeah it's interesting paul paul can i come to you on that then it sounds that's a really interesting point i think simon's made about um mm almost being in the room to hear the language that's spoken and think, right, how do I, how do I phrase my stuff in, in terms of that language? But that's quite a, I, that strikes me as quite a difficult thing to do, to, 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 to take all the stuff you're dealing with and then try and almost translate it across into yeah. other language. I don't know, Paul, how, how do you feel about that? That strikes me as difficult. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. It is difficult. And I think, 
So I've actually been on both sides of this particular conversation. So I was a non-executive director for two startups as well. So I was on the other side receiving information, you know, somewhat biased because I understand the kind of language and the communication which people have given me. But mm. it was fascinating because when you're a director of an organization, a limited company or a PLC, you are personally liable for absorbing those mm. communications. You are have to understand it. And, you know, ultimately, if you don't act in a good faith and, you know, good way of managing the company ultimately you know there are sanctions for those kind of things so you know when these kind of board conversations do occur you actually have to take them seriously but translating as, as simon mentioned you know very very technical very very you know broad conversations about malware or conversations about how many events you're seeing and then turning that into a meaning meaningful you know key risk indicator or a key kpi or an okr or whatever they want to call it right. it's really really difficult and kind of saying this is the problem this is the solution. This is how much you're going to have to cost to fix it, or the investment, or resources, or whatever. And I think mm. that kind of um, you know system actually worked quite well when I was trying to you know explain to the chief executive and the non-exec directors, saying, right, okay, we have this problem. We need to mm. fix this particular issue, and it's going to take X, Y, and Z to actually fix this problem. So putting it in those kind of terms and making it as as um, non-verbose as possible, I think, is the best way to describe. Yeah, interesting, interesting. Brooks, Brooks, can I come to you on this? Because um, there's an interesting question here, I think, emerging around data and how you how you present data, how you run numbers and so on. Um, and I suspect quite a lot of people have been in the meetings where, you know, the graphs have been put up and, you know, it, it, it just gets into it, it just gets into numbers soup in the end. And you're not quite sure what any of it means. You know, do you think there's a piece around around reporting, around numbers, around statistics in this to sort of make those really relevant and make them stand out? I, yeah, I mean, you can you could go on for days with numbers, right? I think the, the numbers that are really shocking and actually get the attention of boards are the preventable ransomware attacks that have actually taken place where ransoms have been paid. So Colonial Pipeline, for example, paid a uh, dark side ransomware of 4.4 million. Um, Conti paid, uh, had a demand of 25 million. Kaseya was a $70 million demand from Soden and Reville. Um, NetWalker uh, was a ransomware attack that's taken place, you know, a, a while ago demanding 1.4 million in paid uh, paid ransom. I think South Presteria paid on the riot deal 50 million. So you put those in front of a board and say, mm. right, what's our position on if we're going to pay it because it's going to happen if it if we don't have prevention in place, right? And and what, where do we you know where do we draw the line? What do, do we pay? Do we not pay? And look at all these other people that have and have been in the press with it. So yeah. that that is probably about as tangible as you can get when you're speaking to a board. Yeah. It's interesting, Brooks. Yeah, I think I think one of the things I've not been in many board situations. I've only done done a couple of these things. But what's interesting is um, the feedback I've had, the comments I've had from from those board board members have been um, talking about incidents they've seen that have hit the competition recently. So they said, "Oh, did you hear about that guy? You know, did you hear about how badly it went there?" And uh, I do wonder. This ties slightly to my previous point about the rearview mirror. You know, that the, the, the obsession of boards that I've witnessed seems to be, I don't want to be that guy. Who just was in the news last week for this particular thing? Do you, Brooks, do you think that's a that's a that's a concern? Yeah, it is. I, I, I just listening to myself talk. It sounds like you know we're just creating fear uh, for the board, and that's not the right way to position cybersecurity. It has to be done in a way that is you know with intent uh, as a best practice, and really getting that business continuity planning in place, disaster planning in place. Expect the unexpected. Expect that asteroid to, to you know hit the Earth and have an extinction event. Right? You got to plan for the unexpected. And that's probably a better way is just, you know, having in place good hygiene, good cybersecurity mm. hygiene. But this other scary stuff does happen and you need to think about it and talk about it and plan for it. Yeah, that's a good question, actually, Simon. Can I come to you on that? Um, 
positivity because <laughs> because brooks makes a good point you know if, if you're just the doomsayer and the yeah the you, can't, you, you can't be running around saying oh you know with your hands running around with your hands in the air going oh my god oh my god it's the world the sky's coming down and there's no you know you you that's only going to last for so long so i think mm. you, you you can be put i think there are things you can be positive about and so you talk about as much as you talk about success stories you can you can describe where there is success around the firm but you know let, let's face it the, the the ransomware attack can happen just like that through you know just one of your users doing the wrong thing and you know one of the new ways that we're 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 understanding that ransom is being uh, being achieved is by identifying disgruntled employees and employees being approached to place a file on a system because you know the new technical controls are in place you know that's a huge challenge and if you've got a business that might have gone through the pandemic i mean fortunately mine hasn't so far but has gone through the pandemic and is facing real challenges and has had to cut a workforce mm. suddenly as a cyber team you're going well now we've got trusted people who are no longer trusted because they're obviously wow. disgruntled and could they be approached by one of these <clears throat> act threat actors you know, and used to place a file onto the system in a way that they can't be, you know, it can't, in theory, can't be identified, et cetera, et cetera. So this is a constant moving target for us. And it's, you know, so yes, I'm so just back to your first point. Yes, absolutely. You're positive about it. I don't think there's any point in not being positive about it. I think cyber often is a very useful thing. I think it, it you know, encourages good practice around a, a, a business, particularly with data, for example. I mean, Bruin Dolphin was founded in 1762. And you sometimes wonder whether the databases, we've still got databases from 1762. <laughs> you know, those kinds of elements, you know, I would love to be in a startup from that perspective perspective because you start off all shiny and new and you can put in some great retention practices immediately and I think for organizations that have been around for a long time it's hugely challenging we you know systems that have been a very outdated system still being you relied on those kinds of things are real challenges but you can't yeah I mean it's there's no point in walking in being negative I don't think it's helpful to anybody it's interesting yeah Simon you you make a good point about startups although having had a couple of startups on the well quite a few startups on the program it's not always that easy that, that no, fair you, as you say Sorry, I, haven't, you got, I haven't experienced it <laughs> no it's a good point though because you think oh you can start you know fresh and you can start really good often they start with two people who just run the business and don't think about security and it at all and then six months later as the meteoric growth happens they get somebody in but anyway um they're probably not yours mark morris said did jeff go to croatia he's got a croatian tan uh, i've been trying to fix that on my webcam here because i did look overly tan but no i did not go to croatia i did not get a tan karen whitaker says it may only last for so long but the initial impact of running around with your hands above your head is quite high fair enough um look forward to getting footage from inside the board of wherever you work karen um we're running slightly up against time but paul i wanted to to come to you next on that um on the point about communication it, mm. is it a case of just drilling down to do you have sort of the top three do you say look we're mm -hmm. going to go in we're only going to get as you say half an hour or so top three or top two or top five you know do you have to really shrink down you know make shrink it down to your key arguments to your key things yeah i, th I think there's, there's kind of like a, a 50 50 split across what you need to get across and what the board needs to understand to feel comfortable about discharging their their duties and you know the kind of the kind of the questions which are asked can be kind of boiled down to sort of like four or five different categories you know the am i secure Am I, you know, how are the competitors working? What are the kind of risks which we're facing? Oh my God, the incident happened. How does it, you know, how could this possibly occur kind of thing? And those are the kind of buckets you can potentially put them in. 
but I think when you're kind of talking and communicating and actually speaking to 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 the board, a lot of the discussions I've had, which are actually meaningful, are potentially occurring outside of the board, not actually in the room where everybody's there. So mm. speaking to the financial director and saying, actually, you know, this is an issue, we need to do this, or speaking to the HR director and saying we need to do that. Mm. And I think those kind of um, discussions actually do come to fruition quite significantly when you're actually out of the official kind of capacity. But when you're talking to people, it's actually speaking and trying to use words and metaphors and things like that to actually kind of get the message across. You know, I've practiced on my mother, for example, to say, actually, these are the kind of things what I'm talking about. Mum, do you get it? Do you understand it? You know, the first time, no, I don't what you're talking about, Paul. Second and third time, maybe a little bit more. And then actually, yep, I get it. I understand now what blockchain is, for example, yeah. or I understand what malware is now. So it's not necessarily using small and simple words, but using clear and concise language to ensure that people understand what they need to do and how they act or, you know, uh, active questioning, for example, yeah. those kind of things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Really interesting stuff. And yeah, I think the, uh, the lesson about trying to communicate with your mom is one I take fully on board because she basically, she's the person who vets most of my scripts. Uh, Daniela <laughs> says exactly, those are the conversations, not the official presentation of the board. Decisions are sometimes made by the coffee machine. I think Daniela is, is saying next to the coffee machine, the decisions aren't made by the coffee machine. That, <laughs> unless you've got a fantastic coffee machine, let's make all that stuff. But thank you, Daniela, for that, that comment. I think that's exactly right and reflects what, what Paul said there. Um, that was absolutely brilliant. Thanks, well, thanks so much, so much uh, chaps, chaps, to all of our uh, panelists today. I want to thank uh, Dr. Paul Lewis, who's Senior Director of Cloud Security at Elsevier, Simon Mayer, who's Head of Information Security and Data Privacy at Bruin Dolphin, and of course, Brooks Wallace, who's VP Sales EMEA at Deep instinct. Uh, their LinkedIn's are in the chat. If you didn't see them, you can scroll back up, but you can also find them. And you can find this whole talk along with all of our TICE talks, the whole kit and caboodle, all of them archived on the TICE talks website. Um, I'm just going to quickly check what the topic is for, if I can, next week, Tuesday, next week, four o'clock, uh, Jenny Radcliffe's going to be talking about how effective is your security awareness program. I oh, just got Stuart Colson as well from Hidden Text on there. Uh, which is going to be really interesting. And that comes up, the, the Service Security Awareness Program comes up again and again and again. Uh, so it's going to be fascinating. Folks, have a good rest of the week. Apologies, nobody won the mug, but tune in another time. Maybe you'll win one and uh, have a great weekend in the meanwhile. Take care all. Cheers. Bye. Thank you to our host, Jeff White, Paul Lewis, Senior Director of Cloud Security at Elsevier, Simon Mayer, Head of Information Security and Data Privacy at Bruin Dolphin, and Brooks Wallace, VP Sales EMEA at Deep Instinct. Thank you to everyone who joined us live and yourself for listening to this podcast. To join us live or to catch up with previous Tice Talk episodes, please visit www.tice.co.uk forward slash talk.